Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the We're Having a Good Time podcast. My name is Dusty Slay. I'm your host, and I'm here with my wife and co-host, Hannah Hogan. Thank you. Uh, We're so excited to be here. This is a Thursday. This is May the 18th, my birthday Happy, 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 happy birthday. Yes, I was just telling Hannah. Hannah was just saying, are lots of people wishing you happy birthday today? And I was like... Uh, not really, and uh, but I was telling her that I don't care about it, and I really don't care. I'm 41 years old today, and for a good portion of my life, my later teens, my 20s, I love telling people it was my birthday. I'd be like, oh, it's my birthday, and I'm, I mean, it was just like a big thing. It just, I, I acted like it meant this great deal to me, but I'm at an age now where I really don't care. I don't even... It's hard to even navigate Facebook for, for me anymore because I have a, a professional page or whatever they call it and a uh, personal page. And like if I go to my personal page and then I click notifications, there's like certain notifications I'll click on. It will take me back to my per- professional page and I'll have to flip back and forth. And it's hard to, for me to even navigate things these days on Facebook and so um, you become an old person <laughs> yeah <laughs> with Facebook. well i'm good with tiktok and and with um with uh twitter and and instagram i feel like if you're nav if you're very good at navigating facebook that's almost like the old thing now right you know um but that being said i just don't care about my birthday i think the celebration of self is a little too much um I'm excited that I've lived another year. I'm excited that I was born on this day in 1982. Uh, My parents were not even married to each other for very long. A few years. I don't even see my parents being married to each other. I'm close with both of my parents. I love seeing them, love talking to them. But I don't see them married to each other. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how they came together (laughs) and gave birth to me. But yet they did. And here I am. Maybe that's why they came together, just to create you and then get out of Dodge. Yeah, I mean, it is is wild when you think about it. I mean, if you're just born to parents um, and they stayed married and you were raised up in that family, first off, congratulations. But um, if you were, it's like, uh, you know, you never think, I don't think you ever think about those things. You may think, well, how'd my parents meet? If they'd never meet, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been born. But to think that they, they didn't even, were they weren't even married very long. And I'm not trying to shame my parents by any means. It's like, I get it. Stuff happens. You know what I mean? They were living in a different time in the late 70s early 80s there's no tender there's no facebook there's no plenty of fish there's no e-harmony you're meeting people in real life out here especially when you live out in the country my dad lived way out in the country i imagine you met somebody you're like i'm gonna go ahead and marry her so i can lock this down but my mom couldn't be locked down my mom was like nah i gotta i gotta go free i gotta be free I'm going to take my kids and go to a trailer park and be free. Mm -hmm. 
And um, that's America. That is America. And uh, what's that, John Mellencamp? Ain't that America? You and me, baby. Ain't that America? Divorce isn't free. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. That is true. So we're here on my birthday. Um, this is a Thursday, like I said. And now uh, the last weekend where I've been, I went out to Knoxville, Tennessee to perform two shows at the Bijou Theater. And I had them recorded for a new stand-up comedy special. And the le- the weeks leading up to it, I've been working it, working it, working it. I mean, I've been working that set. I've been rearranging it. I've been trying to open with different things. I've been doing this. I've been that. I've been. Ha- I've, I've had. I've had shows so incredible with this set. I'm like, why am I even working on it? It's so good. And then the next night, I'm like, am I even ready to film a special? Do I even have enough jokes? Why in the world would I record these jokes? And I worked, but I kept working it. I kept rearranging things. I kept, I even talked to a couple of my old buddies that used to help me write jokes back in the day. I just wanted to tighten everything up and make it feel really good. And the two shows at the Bijou could not have gone better. I did the first set and it was good. And I said, I got it. I said, no matter what, I'm good to go. No matter what happens on this next show, I have an hour recorded that I like, that I would be very happy if it was my special. And so the second show, I was a bit more relaxed, and that show was amazing. So it just feels good. It felt like that uh, the crowds that came out were, uh, were so great. People from my high school came. Uh, people that I do comedy with now came, people that I've never met came, Nate Land podcast listeners came, we're having a good time, podcast listeners came, people just from the internet, and they came out, and they came in hot, ready to laugh, and I feel great about it. Were you having fun on stage two, or were you preoccupied with the fact that it was your special? I had fun on both shows, but the first show, I was a little bit more preoccupied with, all right, this is, I need to nail these jokes. But the second show, I was like, I've already nailed them one time. Now we can just have fun. And I did. I had a blast. I, you know, some of my jokes, I really worked to edit down so that I could get the set down to an hour. But the late show, I was doing the full version of the joke again. Like I got a Cracker Barrel joke that's arguably too long. (laughs) Uh, but my my point of view on it is, you know, basically I'm putting this out on a special. Um, if I shorten this Cracker Barrel joke, I'll never do the other parts to this joke again. It's a timestamp. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some jokes on my uh, Netflix special uh, that have longer versions to them that I wish I could have done on something that I wish people could see. There's a joke, I, a couple of jokes I've done on late night that uh, late night I don't worry about as much. I'll do those again. But it's just, um, you know, I like the full versions of jokes. I like to get weird with it. Sometimes my jokes are weird and take a weird turn. And the shortest version of them is the tightest, is the best. But I like a creative weirdness about it. And um, it felt good. Knoxville was great. 
I don't know. I don't know how how much a percentage of the podcast is crossover listeners from Nate Land, but I had told a couple of these stories the other day. Um, but you know, one was you know on Saturday during the day, there's a little market out there, um, and I was walking around in the market, and they had vendors everywhere. And I got this bathroom that I've been wanting to decorate with more mushroom stuff. I have some old mushroom paintings uh, that I hung in there. Paintings is a strong word. They're prints on some wood uh, <laughs> that I like, you know, and I just kind of hung them up. They were a carryover from an old place that we had, but I liked them. I used to have an old ceramic kind of 3D mushroom thing that I wish I'd kept. I, I had many, many moves and it probably got broken. Um but I've been wanting to get some more mushroom stuff. And I saw these like clay mushroom structures, little bitty things. And one, I saw one for $20 and I was like, you know what? I'll buy that. And I walk up, I have a $20 bill in my hand. I just want to get it. And there's a lady there. She's wrapping up someone else's order, she, like physically wrapping it up with paper. And then she's fumbling through her square to find out where to swipe the card. And I'm standing there and there's a guy in the back sitting in a chair, just sitting there. And I'm like, I kind of got the money in my hand and I'm kind of holding it up like, hey, I'd like to buy something. And no one acknowledged me. No, one, And it gave me enough time to think, do I really want this mushroom thing? And then I left and did not get the mushroom thing. Now, I'm not mad at the people, but I'm just thinking this. I'm assuming this is a husband and wife and they've 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 hauled all their ceramic mushroom pieces down to downtown Knoxville. I'm sure they didn't just walk right out of an apartment. They probably live in another part of Tennessee. They drove down. They set up a tent. They set up a folding table. They set up some shelves and a tablecloth. And, all, and they displayed all their items. They took the time to write little prices on all of the items. And then when they get out there, they're overwhelmed by two customers that that guy couldn't get. He was heavy. There's things I'd like to say about him. He couldn't get up off that chair and take that $20 from my hand and move on. Do you know that he saw you? Like, how could he not have seen you? It's like, if he didn't see me, that's even worse, I right. think. It's like, what are you doing there? Are you helping your wife? It made it seem like he told his wife, I don't want to be doing this anyway. And he wanted her sales to be low so he could tell her it's not worth it. Right. So you, it was sort of like a feminist act of yours to walk out of that store to support this woman <laughs> yeah. by not paying her. Yeah. You know, well, you know, it's like, she had, when I saw her fumbling, now I run square for my shirts and hats. I saw her flipping through her square as if she had each thing itemized inside of the square. And it's like, is it that big of a deal? Just type 20 in there and let's swipe it and let's get moving. So many local business owners struggle with the square. They do. Yeah. And I get it. I've used a square before. It can be finicky. You got to figure out which way to flip your card, but... Yeah, I mean, the higher up I get into to clubs, the high, the more people are wanting to help me with my square. And they they get aggressive about it sometimes. I had a lady even tell me, this would be a lot faster if you'd let me run the square. And I'm like, just let me do it. 
I'm very fast with it. Every time someone helps me, I feel like they slow me down. I'm very fast with it. I understand waiting tables prepared me for about anything. I waited tables at a very high-paced restaurant, Hyman's Seafood. And Hyman's, if you don't know, there's lots of negative things people say about Hyman's. But this is one thing about Hyman's. Hyman's is, Hyman's is a tourist restaurant, right? So in the summertime, when it's peak tourist season, there's a line out the door and it is, and I mean, so it's like people are waiting. You have your four table section. At least that's how it was when I worked there. And you get pretty good tips, but the thing about it is it's turn and burn. It's all about speed. It's all about how fast can you get the customer in and how fast can you get them out at one time. Now, I don't know how, but a manager just told me this one time, and I don't know how long this was for, how long I had this, but I had the fastest turn turning tables because it, it, it that's how you make money. Now, if you're real, if you're a real hot woman, or I imagine some hot dudes, I guess, you can make money different ways. But I'm like, I'm turning and burning. I'm not out there flirting. I'm not telling people I'm going to college. I don't tell them I have medical bills. I don't have them, you know, I'm not, there's no sympathy tips for me. I'm like working it. You're doing the job right. Yes. And that's what the restaurant wants because the faster people get in, the faster people get out, the more money the restaurant makes. And it's like, that's what I learned to do. So when, I, when I'm running my merch table at the end of the night, it's fun for me. I'm already in the zone because I've been up on stage doing comedy for an hour. I pop down, I switch on my t-shirt salesman clothes. I get down there behind there. I'm like, come on, I'm running a yard sale. Let's do this. I don't need my things itemized. I don't, I don't even care. I brought a bunch of shirts. I brought a bunch of hats. Let's sell those. I know what I bring. So at the end of the day, I can do rough math in my head and go, I brought this many shirts. I brought this many hats. I sell it for this much. How much did I make? I bet you're even swinging some deals in there. Like if someone just bought like four hats and they're like, ooh, these shirts are nice. You'd be like, you know what? I'll throw in that shirt for free or something like that. I bet you've done things like that. I have given some people some deals, but not that good. That is a really good but deal. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't like the deal thing because this is what I think about the deal. Usually I sell my whole bag over the weekend. So my deal thing is like, I feel like a deal is when you're hard up for sales. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm not hard up for sales. It's like if you go to a restaurant and they're advertising $5 burgers, they're just trying to get people in there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying or to. Or if get, they got like an open mic show on a Tuesday night. Yes. That's desperate. You know, the open mic I used to run, I tried, they would come in there. It's Big Gun Burger. They would come in there and the burgers were a bit pricey. It's a delicious place, delicious place. But a lot of these comics were broke, you know, and they would come in and. Um, they would see a $10, $11 burger and they're like, you know, I'm not going to eat, you know? And I told the guy, I said, why don't you do a $5 burger special during the show and even cut your meat in half, use less meat, make it a flat patty, but then people would buy it, you know? And I don't know what his inventory costs were, but I just thought, man, I mean, that'd be a great way to get some people to buy some stuff. And then I also wanted him to do a liquor drink special. He was running a PBR, a tall boy PBR special. Which a PBR, you could nurse for, you know, an hour if you're a weak drinker. 
you know? And a lot of people just wanted to buy something. So they buy a $3 beer and drink, they buy two $3 beers in two hours and then they're out of there. But a liquor drink, you could, you down those. You down those pretty fast. And the more of those you drink, the more you want to drink more, in my experience. See, I like the way you think about money and I like your business uh, acumen. And I think that that's something that's made you maybe the most successful is just your strategy of things. And where do you think you learned all this kind of thing from? Just your day jobs and your living or your father? Yeah, I think a little bit of everything. You know, my dad was an insurance salesman, but my dad used to work in a cotton mill. And my dad told me after the first day at the cotton mill, he came home and he told his mom he's going to quit. And she said, no, you'll be back there tomorrow. And he worked there for several years. And while he was working there, he goes, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to make money. And so my dad did various things and he found selling insurance. And he used to sell insurance in Lafette. He sold Aflac insurance for years and years and years. Before that, he worked for a different company called Independent Life. And he used to go to schools and truck stop, or not truck stops, but like truck depots. There used to be a, a trucking hub called McClendon Trucking in, in Lafette. And he would go there, and as the truckers would come in, he would talk to them about these accident policies. Now, I think the accident policies were small on the totem pole of policies that you can write people, but they were easy to write, I think. According to my dad, they were an easier plan to write. And so he's dealing with a lot of rural people who could get hurt. So when they got hurt, the accident policy would pay them cash and it could be in addition to your other insurance. So he would just rack these up. Now he would sell some cancer policies, some other policies too, but he would just rack these things up. He was always uh, one of the top salesmen in his district. He was always winning a trip, always going somewhere because he was just racking these up. And I remember my dad would leave for work about nine o'clock every day. And then he would come home about two every day. He didn't work that long and it never seemed like he was working that hard. <laughs> and then he would come home and then he would farm. He would put his overall, he would take off his, his button up shirt and his dress pants and he would put on some overalls and we would go out and do stuff, you know, and he would bale hay and sell, sell bales of hay to people. He would sell cows. He would, you know, do, he would, you know, raise cows. And so he, and he had a couple of rental houses. He would acquire these rental houses over the years. And he just had all these kind of side hustles going at the same time to where my dad was always making money. Yeah. You know, and my mom hustled it too, right? My mom had a job, but my mom also learned how to fix stuff. I mean, long before YouTube, my mom would buy books on how to do things and she would, you know, replay like our trailer. Uh, a lot of trailers have a, uh, they're built with this particle board. I don't know if they still are, but it's just wood that's just pieces that are pushed together. And over time, especially in the South, in the humidity and the heat, the moisture in the air would cause the floors to swell up. So they would swell up in certain areas and then get real thin in other parts of the board and then the floor would fall through. So you would have to replace it with, um, you know, plywood. So my mom, you know, 
would do all that. She would, you know, she always had someone that could come over and help. Right, but she wasn't trying to get married again, so she right. had to figure it out. Yeah, and she was also wasn't trying to hire someone every time. So right. there's there's a couple of different things where it's like if you can do things yourself, you don't have to hire people, and you learn some side hustles. We always saved cans. We wouldn't make a lot of money off of it, but we were recycling cans long before anybody thought it was cool to be recycling cans. We had a little thing in the back. We just kept them in there. And after it got a lot, we would bag them up, take it to the place, and they would recycle them and give us a little money. And it's like, this was long before people were like crying about the environment. We've been we've been doing this since before time. And also hunting. You would go hunting. You would kill deer. Hunting wasn't just for sport for people. You kill a deer, two deer, put that in the freezer. You got meat all year. Yeah, I mean, to this day, your mom gets upset if she finds out we threw something out that she thought would be senseless. If we got a, a chair or something that has a stain on it or is, is wobbly, she'd be like, why are you throwing? Like, really, she'll get upset because she would fix it or she'd take it. Yeah, I mean, it's a different time in a way that we're in a pretty good financial situation to where now I wouldn't throw a chair out for a stain. I guess we did one time, but that was your chair. I didn't care about it. Um, but it's like, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's just too much crap out here (laughs) these days that doesn't really cost that much to just be hanging on to stuff. Well, I also believe we've probably lost the art of, of frugality and, and, and never wasting anything. You know, I read a book last night that talked about, you, you know, instead of throwing out your meat bones, if you don't have any plan to make a broth out of it. You burn it, and then it creates potash, and then you can put that in your garden. Oh, yeah. So, but, I mean, just think about the waste almost every meal. At some point, there's something we're throwing out or not using. Well, it's true. But also, a lot of the food that we eat now is so poisonous that it's like, why would you even save that? I mean, I think, I just read a thing today just about uh, cholesterol and stuff like that. And, like, they're like, the problem with cholesterol is seed oils and sugar. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. It's not anything else. It's seed oils and sugar. If you cut those out, you'll be a lot better off. Mm-hmm. They said fried food and a sedentary diet is the worst for you. Yeah, probably the other issue with Americans or Western culture is we just love buying things so much now. And there's so many more things to buy and access to multiple stores and online like that even if people knew how to do things and save money, they're spending it quicker than they can save it. Yeah, I mean, that's true too. That, as they used to say, that money's burning a hole in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Burning a hole in your pocket. You ever mm-hmm. heard that? No. You never heard the burning a hole in your pocket expression? No. Oh, okay. That is what they used to say all the time. Like if you'd get a little money, like if, if you know, I'd get a little money when I was younger and I'd want to buy something, they'd always go, that money burning a hole in your pocket, isn't it? Well, you famously said, I think it was on the Nate Land podcast, that it wasn't that some of your family members were poor or it was that they didn't know how to spend money right. Well, it is true. You know, it's like so much of it is like, you know, you got to save money. If you don't have money, um, and you're not making a lot. You got to save what you can. And I and I talked about this on the Western Sizzling podcast. I put out a little video, but it's like, you know, when I was like 16 or so, I told this lady I was working with at Western Sizzling, I was like, I was like, man, I was like, I don't even like saving money. Every time I save it, something happens, and I got to spend that money on it. And she goes, Well, what would you do if you didn't have the money? 
and it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't even think in that moment I started saving more, but I, I it blew my mind. It was when I started to work at Spectreside and I worked with Stu Barber that he really got me to focus on saving money. Now, I definitely did not save as much as I should have, but I did save some because of him. And uh, so, you know, it's just learning. I mean, all this stuff, business stuff, it's like I've done, you know, several podcasts on Spectreside and I've, you know, I've criticized this and that and this and that, but it taught me a bit of a business sense. It taught me how to be a salesman. It taught me how to communicate with people, how to build relationships with people. And all my complaints on Spectreside are not really anything other than one particular boss. I mean, that was really it. The rest of it was a blast. I had one boss I didn't like, and the rest of the time was a blast. I love that job. I mean, I'm glad I'm not doing it now, but it was great. Do you feel like uh, comedians these days have a good business sense or do you yes. think, because I think a lot of times, you know, the th- feeling is like artists are artsy and emotional and they kind of are missing that other side of it, that kind of business ethic. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes both ways, right? I think sometimes comics have now there, obviously there are many that can do both right, but I think there are some that have they have such a good business sense that they're hustling it. They got all the merch. They're selling a bunch. They're making the money. But their artistic game is not up to par. Not saying they're not funny. I've seen very funny comics, but they're not so creative, you know? So it's like, I think it's creativity and standing out amongst the crowd that's going to help you get to the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's like people, they'll have, I, I, I know a, a lady in particular, I won't say her name because Um, I worked with her a bunch of times and she was very funny and she had a huge lineup of merch. I mean, she was selling everything. Um, but you know, it's like, she's not hustling the comedy festival. She's not working it to get in front of the industry. She's not doing that side of things. Uh, so it kept her, you know, kind of on the road. Now she's still doing it and she's got, she's got her own thing she's doing. So she's doing fine. Uh, I think she's working cruises now, which is a great way to go. I mean, you make a bunch of money and, but it's like, if you're trying to go the industry route, I mean, you got to keep your creativity up. You got to keep your hustle and try to stay in front of people and you got to stay relevant in the sense that you can't age out, you know, I, and I don't even mean physical age. I mean, you, you start, um, you're losing track of what's current and acting like an old person. That's how you lose it. In my opinion. And then on the other side, there are comics that are so funny, so creative, out of this world creative, but they never, they got no business sense. They have uploaded a YouTube video in eight years. Right. They got no good social media. They got um, no videos. They're never filming themselves. They got no merch. They're against merch. They won't sell it. But yet they never make any money. They never make any money and they're always bartending or doing something else because they want to be they want to be cool and cool is great. I want to be cool too. But I also want to be working and it's like you got to make money. Yeah, I think like I feel like there's three there's three faucets to being let's say an entertainer. The talent, the money and business side and then the networking side. And I sort of feel like you need to be at least good at two of those. And if and if one of those you, you just, you don't have the energy for, that's fine. Like, 
like you, Dusty, like I wouldn't say you don't network, but you always said you're not the guy that hangs out in the green room and goes out and parties because you don't drink anymore, right? So you're not necessarily going to every party. You're not hanging out late. There's been many times where, you know, a buddy of yours that you knew in LA or whatever is at Zany's and you're like, I could go tonight, but I also just want to hang out with my family, you know, but because you're, you're talented and you have a really good, I think, business um, approach, like, you know, in terms of how you manage your money and in your approach to things, like it's kind of, you make up for it. So it's not that you have to be this Renaissance person with all these things, but you have to figure out what can I do? And if I can't do all of them, then you got to focus on getting better at at least one of them. Yeah, I agree. And that being said though, uh, you're right about that. I always said that if I, I don't want to make it because I'm a good hang, but, but that being said, I am a good hang in that, um, I'm respectful and nice and I don't cause any problems. And when I do festivals, you know, I do go to the parties, right. even when I don't want to. I force myself there. I hang out. I talk to people. I have conversations. I don't try to kiss, uh, you know, I don't try to kiss ass, but I'm, I'm uh, you know, I talk to people like normal human beings. And, um, yeah, but it's like, you know, to some aspect, if you get management, uh, you know, they'll take care of a lot of that for you. I mean, they'll take care of all the business side because – there's business side of things that I'm not going to, I, I would not be able to do as well as my management and agents do. Just like filming this special, you know, I can get someone together to film an hour of comedy for me. I can get a venue to let me do an hour of comedy. I can get an audience of people there and I can film and I can get an hour of jokes. But man, is it easier and, and way better when I have uh, an agent to get me a bunch of gigs to line up to practice and to book me the venue to get a manager that knows to find the right people to film me and the people that are going to do it right and make it look good. I mean, it is like it makes a world of difference. And you did do all that hustle before you had your team. I mean, for years you were booking your own shows. You yes. moved cities. You explored different cities to potentially move to, like L.A. and New York. I mean, you put in the work. Absolutely. And that's probably why you can appreciate your management and team now because, I mean, it takes a little bit of that load off of you. Yeah, I mean, it's when I signed with my manager, she said to me, she goes, how much do you want to work? And I had never been asked that question at that time. And it was like with comedy, it's always like, I mean, I'm always was, I was always trying to get myself booked because it's like, yeah, I may have this weekend booked, next weekend booked, but what comes after that? And so it was no security in it. At one time, me and Hannah was thinking about moving to Chicago because the gigs were really drying up. And I was like, I didn't really want to go to LA. I wanted to keep working the road, but I felt like Chicago would be a bigger city. It would definitely would be a bigger city. And I could still basically work the same road gigs. Um, Florida might be a bit of a stretch at that point, but um, I could still drive most everywhere. And then, you know, some things just turned around, but, uh, you know, we were always on the hustle. And um, yeah, so my manager was like, how much do you want to work? And I was like, I don't know, just fill up the calendar. And then she filled it up and it's been full ever since. Mm -hmm. And I had to, even this year, now that we have a baby, I had to be like, well, let's not do every weekend. So now I try to take one weekend off a month 
because otherwise I'm just I'm just out there and I and I like it. I mean, I like traveling. I like I like hustling it. I mean, the you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine from Charleston and we used to do, you know, talking about the kind of comedy that we used to do and 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 it's like we were lucky to get two open mics a week. And let's say you're doing 5 minutes. Um, now I was running an open mic so I could get a little bit more time, but just for the sake of it, let's say we were getting 15 minutes a week. That's how much comedy we would do. That equals one hour a month. Is that right? 15 minutes a week? Sure. Yeah. One hour a month. And let's throw in an extra 30 because we might get a book show a couple of times. So let's say we got an hour and a half a month of comedy. And that was the most I mean, now I do five hours a weekend. I mean, like this weekend, I'm going to uh, the Virginia Beach Funny Bone. I'll be there Friday and Saturday, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. I'll do four hours of comedy this weekend. And it's like, you get better so much faster. That's why I always tell comics, like, if you live in New York City and you really get work in the circuit, you can do a bunch of time. I mean, I did so much comedy when I was in New York for a month. And it's like, you can get the time in there. So if you live in New York, as long as you hustle it, you'll be set. But if you're not living in New York, you got to work the road. You got to do it just for the stage time. It doesn't even matter how good the shows are. And it can be hard. You show up to some place and it can be just disheartening when you show up and you're like, there's 10 people in the audience and they're all wasted. And you look at the other comics and they're, you don't like the other comics. They're not very nice and they're hacks. And then uh, you're like, all right, well, here we go. I'm going to be here all weekend doing this. And then you, you get to your hotel and it feels like you're going to get robbed the whole time you're at the hotel. It could be a real grind. But the reason you're doing it, and then you get your paycheck at the end and you're like, well, I risk my life. Uh, I'm a little more depressed, uh, all for $250. But you're like, it's not about the money. I mean, you need the money to live. And that's where the merch comes into play. But it's the stage time. What about the road burnout? This is something I don't know if you've experienced yet or if you're just sort of subhuman so you don't, you will never experience it. But I feel like a lot of people get burnt out and then they decide, I don't want to do this. I'm going to move to the coast or the road's not the way to go. I mean, there's a lot of people that say that. Well, it's person by person, I think. Um, and all the situations are different. But for me, it's like when I get start to get, that's why you always have to plan some time off. You're not indestructible. So you got to plan some time off. So when I'm, you know, it's like, so I'm looking at my calendar and I go, all right, I got one week off a month. So, and because we're only working weekends, I mean, that can translate into, you know, two weeks. And see, I have a uh, a different perspective because I worked a full-time job until I was 30 and before getting into comedy. So when I worked a full-time job, I would work 40 to 60 hours a week, depending on the time of the year. If it were in the summertime, I could be working up to 60 hours. Usually it was right around 50 during the summertime. So I'm working 50 hours a week. I got Saturday and Sunday off. Sometimes in the summer, I might even have to go in on a Saturday to go to the store to do some selling. And the money didn't go up. It, the money didn't change if I was working 40 or if I was working 60. It was the same because I was a salaried employee. And then I got two weeks of vacation off a year. So you realize 
when you start doing comedy, you're like, even if I'm doing this every weekend, this is physically less hard than what I was doing before. I would go in and I would pull a pallet of fertilizer up to another pallet of fertilizer and I would individually stack these bags out in the hot Charleston, South Carolina sun with no seams, uh, swarming my face and biting me and uh, managers yelling at me and Scott's employees moving all my displays. And I'm like, man, it is so much easier to drive eight hours to do comedy at this place. Now, at the time, the money I was making selling pesticides was better than the money I was making doing comedy. But, you know, the idea was that you had your freedom in your life and you're like, I'm doing something I like to do. I mean, there's such a cheesy, cliched expression, but it's like, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's not true because I, um, you know, it's still work, but... It is a different work. It's a, it's a fun work. And it's like, the sad part is I feel like there's a real attack on small businesses in this country these days. And it's like small businesses, the, what makes them so great is people will work, they should at least. Now, this maybe we go back to the lady selling the mushrooms. It's not always the case. But it's like when you're working for yourself, you work harder because you want your business to be great because this business is your livelihood. So you want it to be good. So you really put care into it. So therefore, your customers end up with a better product and a better experience. Yeah. But do you think that that's true now? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Now, as I was it's saying, it's got to be true some places, yeah. but it's, it's probably also hard to hire people that are, that even want to work. Yeah. I mean, as I was saying that, I was like, well, that lady selling the mushroom, she's probably retired. It's probably not even her real job. What if her and her husband got in a huge fight after you left? Like, what if, what if she's like, we lost that customer because you wouldn't help. And, you know, and she knows not to emasculate her husband by like saying get up off your butt and serve this guy you know and you know and then, or maybe she held it in for days and then like today they're getting in a fight over it i yeah i mean that's likely i wanted to go hey i'll buy this if you'll just take this money from my hand mm-hmm. or i wanted to go hey dude do you work here uh but i felt like all that was too aggressive for the farmer's market yeah, well, we went into a farmer's market the other day here in Nashville, and I said, this place is the kind of place that wants to sell you things. Oh, yeah. And that it's like you can feel it just by the feel of it, the look of it, the way everything's set up. It's like they're trying to sell things. Yeah. And that's kind of American business I like to work uh, yeah. purchasing. Well, you know, the Garden of Babylon there in in there, they really hustle it. They they really tried to help me a bunch. They were very helpful. The uh there's a um uh um place we go to here in Hermitage to get plants sometimes. And they have been to a show that I did one time before, so that may help, but every time I'm in there, I mean, the owner of that place walks me around and gets me whatever I want. And it's smart for him because I end up buying more than I probably would have bought had he not helped me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm likely to just walk around and not buy anything. But if I got a guided tour and somebody's like, oh, yeah, you should get this one. 
I'll probably get it. Yeah, I mean, being friendly and being cool, I mean, it works. I mean, we moved into our neighborhood, and the woman that lived across from us was a hairdresser. And we kind of became friends, and she gave me a free coupon to go to her salon. And I've been going there for over three years now. And I go there, too. Just because why would I go somewhere else? You know? It's like... She worked it. She hustled it. I don't feel like she's hustling me because we're, we are friends, but it's kind of like you want to give your friends business. You want to, you know, uh, recoup or give back to people that are making the effort. And that's how I feel about comics. Like I'll look up some Canadian comics who were the darlings of Toronto 10 years ago. And I'll be like, I wonder what they're up to. And then I'm, I see their YouTube channel. I'm like, you haven't uploaded a video in 10 years or, or your last video was five years ago. Like, what are you doing? It's like, you're not trying to right. put your comedy out there. Are you afraid people aren't going to like it? Are you afraid it's only going to get 28 views like this one? Well, there's no, it's, it's way worse if you don't have anything. Yeah. I mean, I've had comics uh, try to get booked on my show and they would send me a video and it would be from five years ago. And I'm like, have you not recorded yourself in five years or is this your best video? Right. Was your best video five years ago? Yeah. Uh, I mean, come and it's like people will send stuff with bad audio. I'm like, I can't even hear what you're saying. You got to upgrade your audio. I do think Americans are much better at social media than than Canadian comedians because, you know, it's not that they're funnier, but they're working Instagram. They got the reels. They're obnoxious. You want them to just like slow down on the Internet because they're all over. But they get it because they're like they're working it. And in America, I think you just know you got to work it to make that money because that money is there to be made. But so many talented Canadians are just too cool. To try, too cool to put their stuff out there. Like one girl, so funny, so talented. She's not even posted on Instagram since 2020. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what? Like, really, truly, what are you doing? Don't you want your art out there? Don't you have something to express over this? You know? Yeah, I mean, even just recording a podcast like we do, and then uh, taking a clip out of it and posting it. I mean, that's something. Just talking to the camera can be something and all of that can be annoying if people do it all the time but it's like i'm a comedian i'm not the i'm not another comedian's uh target group you know what i mean like i get annoyed by it because i'm like i also do this right you know but uh you know what i can't get enough of people gardening uh people giving me health advice People telling me uh, that the uh, one world government's coming. I can't get enough of it. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Aliens or demons? All day I'll watch it. (laughs) Different kinds of homeopathic medicines. Yeah. Different types of things I need to stop doing. So you'll passive aggressively send them to me (laughs) and say, hey, stop feeding our daughter corn. Or, you know, why don't you use this oil? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking in my head alone, the the five, six years I've been in Nashville, how many local Nashville comedians have a, a very good size internet following just from working it. And they're not necessarily all of them the funniest people, but they've figured it out. They've worked it. There's one particular guy in the comedy scene. He has, um, I don't know how many followers he has, but an, uh, uh, a massive following, massive in the sense that he put out one video they got millions of views, and he got a ton of followers from it. And then he got an agent. Did he? 
Yeah, and a manager, right? Oh, okay, I don't know if that. I Are don't we know. talking about the? Uh, I don't know. Well, it doesn't the one matter. a couple years ago or the one last year. I don't know, okay. but he got one video okay. that got millions of views. Okay. And then he has a huge following now. And it's like, but it's like, he put himself out there. You right. know what I mean? He could have, he doesn't, he's not working the road. Now he's, he is now he's and he's trying and he's doing more and more, but it's like, he put himself out there, Yeah. but people won't do it. Yeah. That, and then I get it. Cause I was like that too. And it's hard to put yourself out there. I've put lots of stuff out on the internet and it, and it sucks because one video will do really good and you'll feel sort of encouraged and on the verge of fame or whatever. And then you'll put out 30 more and no one cares anymore. And it, it is demoralizing and it is hard, but the reward, if you just kind of stick at it and, and even just for your own knowledge that you are trying and you're not just sheltering yourself and your pride by being like, I am funny, but I'm not going to do the internet like these basic internet you know, clout chasers. It's like, you better start chasing some clout. Yeah. I mean, and it is hard. I mean, my last tonight show, I put it out and I, I liked it. Now it's the one where I'm wearing a yellow shirt. The, um, audience was all in mask and I don't know that it was full capacity. So I'm up there on stage and these jokes that have been crushing all over the road are now doing pretty mediocre because people are wearing masks on their face and I'm in New York City. Um, and you were working it like during the pandemic, right? Like, yes. Wasn't the most ideal. Anyways, you're not supposed to make excuses, but I hear what you're saying. But no, I'm just saying. So then I get up there, I do my set. I don't, I got no excuses. I felt good about it. But then the next morning when it hits the internet, the first, because I'm, and I'm ready right when it hits. I mean, the first four or five comments are super negative. And I'm like, oh no. Now, as it starts to load in, the comments become overwhelmingly positive and all the negative ones really get pushed down to the bottom and it ended up being very positive. But, you know, you're basically being put out to the world uh, for, you know, because you're, you're going on their platform, which was, you know, is still bigger than mine. So it's like, you get that put out there and you're like, oh man, I hope this, I hope this gets received well, you know, but it's like, you got to do it. It, it. Well, what is it about you that is able to, you know, digest all this because you comment and respond to trolls and I, I know I'll admit it, like that stuff would just bother me and eat me up. And I'm just, it's just, or is it just people have different sensitivity levels, different ego levels that they can and cannot deal well, with? Well, I think so, but also, and I, I, you know, this is not like me to necessarily say something like this, but I do think it's harder for women on the internet because, you know, I, I don't know, or maybe it's just a skin that I've built up over the years, but I never, um, you know, I don't, I just have gotten used to, um, you know, kind of negativity. I mean, when I, when I worked, when I sold pesticides for all that time, I mean, I was constantly getting negative feedback from stores, from my manager, no matter what I did, even when I would do things the right way, if I would, if I would do things the right way in the store, I would get negative feedback from my boss because I wasn't aggressive enough in the store. And then if I was aggressive, like he wanted me to be in the store, then I was getting negative feedback from the store because they're like, 
you're 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 messing up the whole plan. So you just get used to that in a sense. And then once you start easing out, I mean, I, the first several things I tried on the internet, I mean, I, I had cut up these old home videos and I was calling them Dusty's Dusty Stories. And I would say I was I dusted off the home videos and I'm putting them on the internet. And then I would give my little commentary. They never would do very well. I put out some stand-up clips. Everybody was, for a while, everybody was doing these stand-up memes where they would post their meme on a picture of them doing stand-up comedy. And I did those and I, they never did well. I put one on Reddit and got eaten alive. Um, and you just get used to that to where you're like, you know what? I'm making people laugh in, in, in shows and I'm getting booked. I don't care what the internet says. And you just keep doing it. And it's like, but I think women get attacked in different ways. I think women get attacked on their appearance there. Um, and it's like, uh, I think, I think stand-up comedy is, uh, I think mostly men are a fan of stand-up comedy. And, and not always the case. Obviously, Leanne Morgan showed that there was a real hunger out there for um, for a, a woman they could relate to. You know, but I think overwhelmingly men watch comedy the most. So when you put, drop that video, it's a, because my fan, but anytime I've looked at, who's following me, it is overwhelmingly men, like like 80% dudes. I mean, it is just a bunch of dudes watching me tell jokes. So now, if you're on my algorithm and suddenly you put out a video, now it's a bunch of dudes watching you and they're like, you know, and it just, it's a harder thing. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I rambled a bit and fumbled around. No, no, around. it does make sense. But I also have always got the feeling from you that you have mm, an internal um, self-confidence that maybe, you know, you've just always had. Like, you just think you're good at comedy. So if somebody trolls you on the internet and insults you, you're like, oh, well, they're wrong. They're just wrong. Yeah, they're stupid. And I think you know, someone like me. Yeah, exactly. You just, yeah. but you, it's, I mean, you can be in denial. It can be a defense mechanism, but it works for you. Yeah. You know, whereas I don't think everybody has that because it's like, you know, if you get that, if you, if you don't get a lot of feedback or you don't have enough wins in your career or you don't, you know, book an audition, this and that, it can just, it just piles up on you to feel like I'm not good at this or I'm no good. So it becomes very difficult to continuously put yourself out there. And maybe it is a sign that you're not good at it, but it also could just be, you got to push through it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I also realized a long time ago, it's like my comedy is not going to be for everyone. So when somebody just comes on and just says, this guy's not funny or this guy's stupid, it's like one time I working at Hyman's, this, uh, this, this guy, uh, somebody sent back the she crab soup and they said, this is not good. And I remember the guy that I was working with at the time said to me about them, said, is it not good or do you not like it? Mm -hmm. Because people are ordering this all day and basically licking the bowl. So you may not like it and that's okay. We'll take it off your bill, but it's good. People like it. It's right. just not for you. You mm -hmm. know, and that's how I think about comedy is it's like, hey, um, Dane Cook is not for me. But can I say Dane Cook's not good? I mean, the guy, the guy made so much money. His half brother stole it from him and then he made it back again. I mean, well, you know, being from Canada, people used to always say like how hacky Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy were like nobody respected them as comics at all. Like they were jokes to people. 
But then I come down here and it's like these are living legends. But it's also yeah. like these are Americans and Southerners in particular that really connect to this humor. Whereas in Canada, you know, artsy snobs, I guess, comedian snobs in Toronto, it's like all they can do is just say how garbage and how bad these people are for the for the art. Jeff Foxworthy's first two albums are two of the best comedy albums ever. I mean, they're so good. It's so relatable. Now, if you're you grew up in New York City, it may not be for you. If you grew up in the middle of Los Angeles, it may not be for you. But it's like uh, for the average person out here, I mean, those albums are unbelievable. I mean, they're so good, the first two. Now, as he goes along, he becomes a little bit more of a family-oriented comedian, which I'm not as into. But the old albums were really great, and it's like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like it doesn't matter how good you are. Mm-hmm. People are going to, you or know. how successful you are. Yeah, they're always going to be like, oh, that person's not good, or oh, they stole this joke. People, I got drinking and driving jokes. I got jokes about blacking out. And people love to say I stole those jokes from John Mulaney. Now, I don't want to be uh, a joke thief. So I go, well, I know I didn't steal it from John Mulaney. But let me go listen and see if it is too close to be like, you know, debatable. And I went and listened. I went tried to find every joke I could find that John Mulaney ever said about blacking out. And he does talk about blacking out. But our jokes are not remotely similar. We both blacked out. We both did stupid things. That's what blacking out is. What it sounds like to me is John Mulaney blacked out and I blacked out. Right. And is it really that inconceivable that you, a recovered alcoholic who was a fall down drunk for most of your adult life up until 10 years ago, might have a joke or two about blacking out drunk? I didn't fall a lot. I will say that. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah. Of, of course, you're going to have drinking jokes. You have a lot of different drinking jokes. You have blackout drinking jokes. You have drinking and driving jokes. You have drinking and yelling at people jokes, drinking and getting in accidents jokes. I mean, drinking, drinking and, and preaching drinking. I mean, you have so many <laughs> drinking jokes because that was your world, yeah. you know? So for you to not have like a similar take on a, the common experience, which is you don't really remember anything. It's like, it's conceivable that you and John as human men might, you know, be like, whoa, what about that? You know? Yeah. Well, that's what's so silly about it all. So it's like, that's why, you know, just over time, you just build up, you just build up the skin. It's like, but you always, you have to have wins in there, right? So it's like, you know, I could get criticized by, uh, someone on Facebook and say I'm not funny. And um, a lot of times people, people on Facebook, especially it's all real old dudes, and they'll go, this is what happens when all these libtards get, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's always something like that where it's like, geez, dude, like my joke has nothing to do, like especially the Toby Keith podcast clips I put out, people could not handle it because I was talking about that How Do You Like Me Now song and they couldn't handle it because uh, I just am doing a song breakdown, right? And I'm just, I'm not, this is not me criticizing Toby Keith, unless Toby Keith is the character in the song, and then I guess I am, but I'm mainly just criticizing that character, and I'm just poking fun. 
But they act, I said, I think it was because I said he was really mean to her. And they're like, oh, here we go. Another pansy out here. And it's like, it's like, geez, guys. I mean, just listen to the breakdown. I mean, is this how you're treating women out here? I mean, are you writing their number on the football field? I mean, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. But uh, but you got to have wins, you know. When you have wins, they help you along. If all you're getting is negative feedback, then maybe you do need to quit. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like because it, this may not be the job for you. Let's talk about that for a second because there's lots of people in this heartbreaking business that have been in it for years, and I get it. You don't want to quit because you've already put down so much time, and where do you go from here? But what do you think are some telltale signs that you need to invest in a different avenue? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. Because you don't want to be like, give up on your dreams. You don't want to be that person. But I do think some people need to hear that. Well, I think dreams, uh, first off, are overrated. People always say that to me. They'll always say, uh, you're you're living out your dreams. Your dreams have come true. And comedy never was necessarily my dream. I wasn't sitting around, um, you know, going one day I'd like to be a stand-up comic. I just, I started doing well at comedy and I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll give this a shot and see if I can make money this way. I mean, more than give it a shot. I mean, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do what it takes to do it. But it wasn't like some dream that I'm now trying to fulfill. So I think people people's dreams are overrated. What about like, are you talking like you didn't have like visions of grandeur and Yeah, I mean, I'm like, well, I, I think we all do to some degree, but it's like, I think sometimes people think it's my dream to do this and I'm going to do it uh, no matter what. Now, I, I said that in a sense, right? I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to do it. But if you're doing it and it's not going well and you're not getting better and you're not having fun and you're not getting booked, uh, how long can you go on that way? Uh, you know, is, are you limiting yourself? Cause like, let's say this, let's say you're a pesticide salesman and you're really good at comedy. Are you going to keep selling pesticides even though you hate it, um, or you're going to go for something you're good at. In the same sense, if you're not good at comedy, there's got to be something you're good at. Find that and do the thing you're good at. I think a lot of times people's egos get in the way, and they say, no, this is what I'm going to do, so so I'm going to do it. And I'm like, I don't mean give up, quit, stop pursuing art altogether, but you got to ask yourself, uh, if it's not going well, is this the right thing for me? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I just think these are conversations that, that, that no, no one's allowed to have. It's like you're not allowed to just be practical or have like some real hard look at yourself and your life in the mirror and even just your sense of self. Like, you know, I don't know. It's like all these comics on the West Coast all of a sudden going to therapy four times a week because their careers stalled out. It's like, well, maybe you're depressed because you know, you're, you're, you're not doing well and that's, it's okay to not do well, but you, you probably have some sense and, and, an IQ about you that you can, you can change, you can change. I yeah. Mean, and also sometimes maybe just your environment. I think about people going to therapy and it's like yesterday we had the day off 
And we took an old tree log. We laid it up against the fence. <laughs> we built, uh, we put dirt in the cracks. And then we put down plants. We built a little, uh, I had seen rabbits coming through this hole. So we built a little hole around it. A little, uh, a little, uh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for rabbits to come through and to be a little bit of a nature scape. And we put some plants back there and it looks really great. And, and it's like, uh, that's very therapeutic for me. I stand out there in my bare feet. I'm grounding. I'm touching nature. Uh, it didn't cost very much. I mean, nothing is cheap these days, but it didn't cost that much to go buy things like that. Bought a little soil, a couple of plants. And it's like, but even if, even if you don't have any money, you could, you could dig up grass plots and do what I did. Just dig up little pieces of grass, put some dirt you find in there and do that. You don't have to buy any of this stuff. Um, and it's like people get, they, they, their whole lives revolve around their career. Now, if you're going to do comedy, you're going to devote most of your time to the craft, but, um, it doesn't have to be your entire life. But you do need to check in with yourself. And maybe I should just be honest and because so, so that I'm not just, you know, crapping on people. But it's like, that's what happened to me. I was fairly successful. You know, I was I made some modest success in television in Canada, was able to immigrate on my own accord to the U.S. I worked the road with Dusty and, and you know, made a very and modest. separate from me. And separate from Dusty. I made a, a modest living. But, you know, I was fairly much like I'd say trending up like you know I was getting more intention when but Hannah when Hannah moved down here she was on a work visa she could only work in acting or comedy and I was not very making very much money so I was like I need you to work and yeah. she did yeah and you know but the reality was that even amongst my successes and my tv shows and my um you know getting booked all the time and people telling me I'm great the, the 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 mixture of me and show business was not healthy for me. It 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 was not good for my ego. I got upset too easily. I was just I was kind of miserable and jealous and envious most of the time, irregardless of how well I was doing. In fact, the better I was doing, the more the more greedy and covetous I become. And, and it was just so negative, you know, and and I finally got to the point, even when I was booked up for probably a year and a half out where I was like, I hate this. I absolutely hate this. And so I quit. I canceled all my gigs in probably two days. And I'm, I haven't done stand-up and, and, and anything, you know, remotely entertainment in four years. You know, I'm a, I'm a housewife and I'm a mom now. And I feel great. Now, if you had a told 25-year-old me, you're going to quit this career, you're going to give up, I would be just absolutely devastated that I would give up and quit. But it is actually just fine. Like, I'm actually just fine with it. I don't regret it. I'm happier and more at peace now than I ever have been. Now, I'm not saying you should just go be a housewife. I'm just saying you don't know what's on the other side of quitting something, even if you've dedicated the time. You know, you don't know what's on the other side of this thing you you, you feel like, you know, your ego can't handle. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, our, our, our lives are faced with decisions that we have to make all the time where we have to decide what we're going to do. I mean, it was a decision for me to leave my hometown for no reason. I didn't have a, I didn't leave to pursue a job. I didn't leave to pursue uh, comedy. I left in pursuit of just something new. 
I wanted to see what else was out there. What else could I get myself into? And I found comedy along the way. The same, the same with that. I mean, it's like, I'm not trying to encourage anyone to quit comedy, but no. I see people do it sometimes for far too long and they just don't seem happy. Actually, I told Hannah this. There was a girl I knew. Uh, I didn't even really know her. We just kind of knew her on the internet because she was a comic too. And I think she had been to my shows when I was in her city. And I, uh, she had talked about quitting drinking and I saw a post from her um, about how she was like, I don't know, a year or two years sober. And I just clicked on her Instagram to see um, what she had had going on. And, and she made an announcement that she had quit comedy. She was like, I've finally decided to quit comedy. I just am not joy- enjoying it anymore. Uh, and then I went and looked at like the post before. And she said something like, I mean, you know, I'm not down with this kind of wording, but I'll just say what she said. Something like, I'm praying to the gods of comedy that I don't bomb again tonight. And it's just like, I know that feeling, that nervousness of just going out and you just want it to be good. And it's like, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah. If you hate comedy, just admit you hate it and move on with your life. Yeah. And I mean, it was helpful for me to see you like actually loving being on stage, loving selling merch, gearing up and being excited to go back on the road. I mean, you love actually doing it. And I think like there's a group of comics that are like you and just love it, just love comedy. But then there's just this other part that I think there's a group of comics that maybe are super talented too, but that it really just torments them. Yeah, It's like, do you actually like it? Do you actually like it? Yeah. And that's the thing. That is tough. Hey, I got a couple of emails I'd like to read. It's your birthday. It is my birthday. All right, let me start with this one. This guy, the reason I want to start with this one, because this guy, as people often do, confront me about something that I've said on the podcast. And... um. This was last week I said something, and he, um, um, uh, I don't know, changed my opinion. Oh, wow. Good job. It says, uh, I just got done listening to the latest podcast, and you talked about tithing a little bit. You have your opinion, and then you said you were sure you were right. Now, he corrected himself on that part later because I said, I don't know that I ever said that I was right. And I said, I definitely don't mean to say that. I'm sure that I'm right because all I'm doing is reading and trying to relay a message. But he says, you have your opinion, and then you said you were right. That got me thinking about it, and I wanted to share the verses I found regarding it and give you my opinion. I used the KJV because I know you prefer that translation. The idea of giving to God to honor him was established back in Genesis 4, to, uh, chapter 4, verse 2 through 5. It is clear from these verses that it was understood that giving back to God is something that is to be done. The first time the word tithe or tenth is used is in Genesis chapter 14, 18 through 20. This is where Abraham, or Abram at the time, gives a tithe to, to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. 
The important thing is the idea of the tithe was established before the law was given to Moses and Israel. The first instructions that I could find regarding the tithe and the nation of Israel is Leviticus 30. Uh, well, actually, this is Leviticus ends at chapter 27, I believe. So I think that's what he meant. Leviticus 27, 30 through 34, and Numbers 18, 20 through 30. Now, this, this, this goes on and on, but he says it explains that the tithe that God instructed to Israel in the law is to be used as the portion for the Levites because they did not receive a land inheritance. The tithe was for the priest's care. Jesus talked about tithe in Luke eleven forty two and Matthew twenty twenty three. Uh, these verses are Jesus criticizing the Pharisees for their lack of using mercy and love while they give their tithe, but Jesus says not to stop tithing. Now, uh, and he goes on to say that he's not saying that it's necessarily a commandment, but that is understood that is something that you do. And that's where I'm having trouble with it because I don't see where we're actually commanded to do it. But I, but the the thing that confronts me the most is is that the thing about the Levites, where you uh, give to the church to support um, people of the church because that's their job to minister to you and to care for other people. So you're giving that tithe to that church now. So I don't disagree, and I feel like it is important to give back and that we should give back because uh, as it, as I understand it, none of this is mine. None of this money is mine. God gave it to me and he wants me to use it wisely. So I don't know that we necessarily have to give it back to the church depending on your own church situation. Some of these giant mega churches, I don't agree with a lot of the stuff they're doing. Their, their preachers are driving nicer cars than the majority of the congregation. And I just don't believe that. I believe that if the preacher, if that church has taken in that much money, then they should also be giving it back somehow. And I don't have the answer. I can't find a thing where God says, I command you to do this. Um, but I do think it's important to give back, and I appreciate um, the email. I feel like it was a big help to me, and um, uh, I like it. There were some others that I that I wanted to read, but as as always, I did not um, plan it. Someone asked, "Was I planning to do a show in Birmingham?" I don't have anything on the schedule. I would like to come back to Birmingham, and I don't want to criticize the Stardome. But my experiences at the Stardome in the past have not been amazing. And if I do come back to Birmingham, I would like to find a different place to perform. So that's what's keeping me from coming there. I would love to do more in Alabama because that's my home state and I love it there. I think it's great. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. I hope this has been fun, helpful. Please send emails, though. I, I do read the emails. I don't always include them on the podcast, but I do read them. And I appreciate you sending them. We're having a good time.